Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington. I'm joined by Dr. Paul Jean, instructor in New Testament and senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church. Dr. Tommy Keene, professor in New Testament also, and um, academic dean here on our campus, and Professor Gray Sutanto, who is our professor of systematic theology. We are still longing for the return of our other professor of Old Testament. Um, I feel a little outnumbered here, brothers, but Dr. Peter Lee is still on sabbatical, and so we look forward to his return in the winter. But we are continuing on in our series on the Ten Commandments, and we've now arrived at the seventh commandment. Uh, it's short and sweet. It's in this series of two-word commandments that we started last time in the discussion of uh, not murdering. So do not murder, do not commit adultery, and do not steal. Uh, in Deuteronomy, it's Deuteronomy chapter five, chapter 5, verses 17 to 19. These are the two-word commandments. Uh, and the one that we have today, lo tin af, do not commit, thou shalt not commit adultery. Um, of course, in Christian tradition and in Christian ethics, this topic has been, or this commandment has been considered a, a rubric under which we can talk about all of uh, the sexual sins that are prohibited in scripture, not merely the act, but maybe primarily the act of having uh, sexual relations with someone outside of marriage or with someone who is otherwise married or committed to another person. This is used for both men and women throughout the Old Testament. But as soon as we look at the Westminster Larger Catechism, we see that this is actually talking about more than just this particular uh, specific behavior, but really talking about a much broader array of sexual sin and sexual disobedience. So I want to start with Dr. Paul Jean, our professor and pastor here, as, as, as we used to say, one of the real pastors uh, teaching at RTS. And I'd like to talk to Paul about how is this handled or how does he, you know, how does he approach this in the work of church ministry? What's the importance of this commandment and the work of ministering in the church? Well, there's so much to uh, be said here, but as you were uh, introducing topics, Scott, I thought about something my father mentioned to me 20 or 30 years ago. And at the time he was an elder at the church and he said in passing, I don't even remember the context. He said, the thing about sexual sin is that it warps the way a person thinks. Um, and he says, the longer a person is involved in sexual sin, like he just thinks funny. That's all he said. It was one of those passing comments that he made and just sort of walked away. But he was obviously speaking, uh, not theoretically, but just having served as an elder for many years. And um, now that I've been a pastor for some time, I think I appreciate what he's saying that there's something about sexual sin that really warps the, I think, moral compass of a person, right? And uh, you know, Paul, the apostle, talks about the conscience being seared, right? I think it is interesting that um, when you minister to people like that had been involved in sexual sin, 
that's one feature I've noticed. It's almost like their conscience have been, has been seared. Like, and uh, maybe it's also because we are so against any form of guilt in our society today, but there isn't guilt. Um, I remember an instance when, you know, there was a, a member who was having very regular sex with different people using uh, various um, dating apps. And so when we, when I and other elders tried to confront this person, uh, we are very taken aback by how assertive the person was that I'm a believer. Like there's no doubt I'm a, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus. And there wasn't the sense that, well, well, maybe you are, you know, God. And the person would constantly say, God knows my heart. And to that, I always say, no one would disagree. God does know your heart, but that doesn't mean you know your heart. And one of the reasons why the Bible has given us guidance is so that we might not be self-deceived. And so I think my first point would be that at the very least, uh, we do need to address this and not shy away. I, I could say plenty more, but I have just noticed that this is one of those sins that really warps the way people think and feel. And specifically, I've noticed an increasing uh, absence of any sort of guilt. If I can take like the other side of, uh, of the same coin, you know, again, pulling on Paul, not you, Paul, but Paul, the Bible, Paul, um, the real Paul, the only Paul, the real Paul, <laughs> the flip side of that, he, he has that language that um, other sins are outside the body. And this, this is a sin of the body. It's, it's, it's an interesting kind of turn of phrase. And I'm not sure all, all of the things he means by that, but the flip side is it's it's also one of those sins that can do us great damage. It, it's a it's a highly wounding sin, and the implication of that pastorally is, you know, and I think it's good to sound this note maybe at the top is that we have to be sensitive to how we as pastors talk about it. Um, I'm kind of thinking about all of the pushback, uh, appropriate pushback to. Um, purity culture as if this is because it's a wounding sin uh, that you know that you can't be healed by it uh, that we we need to remember that there's forgiveness here and there is restoration and there is renewal it's a sin of the body and so we we need to be careful as we talk about other people's bodies and so all of those kinds of sensitivity issues are also at play and I think particularly right now in our kind of cultural moment um, it's one when pastorally, when we start to talk about it, we do so with care and caution and sensitivity, knowing that other people's experiences are not necessarily our own. I think that's absolutely right. We have to be very sensitive as we talk about it because it, it's so complicated. And in, in some ways, I think that's what Paul's getting at too when he's talking to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6 18 that you quoted there earlier, Tommy. You know, that this is a, it's a different kind of sin than the other sorts of sins that we fall into. Uh, the professor uh, of counseling down in um, Orlando, Sharon Hirsch, in her class on sexuality, I remember, uh, makes a comment on how sexual sin has this kind of direct connection to the human heart. You know, she actually says it more, more kind of, uh, you know, explicitly, she says, you know, the organs of sexual sin are directly connected to the heart, and therefore, both the temptation of it, 
kind of is something that is deeply connected to our inner persons, you know, and so is the effect of it when someone uh, commits sexual sin against another person. There's kind of a direct connection to the heart and it can change and hurt the way that, you know, we think about ourselves, the way that we experience others, the way that we experience God. And there's kind of a uniqueness to this which is often kind of ignored, actually, I think, in our culture. It's kind of treated as a casual thing oftentimes, and I think we are seeing a pushback against that, that it's not casual, that it's something that actually has deep ramifications and implications for a person, not that you can't be healed from it uh, and not that you can't be um, you know, restored and forgiven, but that it's also you know, something that if anyone's ever been involved in pastoral counseling or any counseling along those lines, dealing with issues of sexual sin. It's something that the journey back is a long journey. And it's, and it's one that takes a lot of care and a lot of walking together. And, um, you know, and, and of course the, the healing work of the spirit, because it is something that is connected deeply to our inner person in a way that maybe other sins are not. Yeah, and it's, it's funny, it strikes me as you were saying that, that our culture seems to be actually of two minds about these kinds of things. I mean, Christians have always treated this theologically very seriously, but our culture seems to, on the one hand, encourage an almost flippancy towards uh, what the confession calls chastity, uh, as, as it searches for the big umbrella, umbrella term for sexual sin, it comes up with chastity, uh, you, you know, our, our culture is very flippant towards that. And yet at the same time, uh, especially with the, the various kind of conversations that are going on now, sex is, is identity. Se- your sexuality is identity. Your sexuality is, needs to be is a form of personal expression. It is, it is who you are in some ways. And, and it treats it very, very, very seriously. And it doesn't seem to have a category for both. Um, on the one hand, it's something that we joke about. On the other hand, it's this very serious thing that goes to our core. And I wonder, you know, Christian theology, Christian ethics comes in and has an anthropology, a a system, a theology that can actually deal with uh, both the the body and the soul and the the ways those are tied together, you know, sexually. Yeah, and I think discussing this in the context of the Ten Commandments could be very pastorally helpful to navigate between those two sort of polarities of, of treating sexual sin as if it's so unique that you could never recover from it. And yet at the same time, realizing that sexual sin is one sin among many other sins. It's not as if the Bible isolates this one sin uh, from the Ten Commandments and then recognizes all the others as somehow less than it. So I think locating it within the Ten Commandments recognizes the whole scope of scriptural teaching. On the one hand, it is incredibly dangerous. Uh, it's a sin against the body. You can also talk about how Paul refers to sexual lusts that are unnatural, uh, that there's something actually natural about chastity, about a marital relationship, but, but lots of sexual temptations are actually unnatural. It goes against God's created design for our bodies, and hence it's incredibly serious. Yet by locating it within the Ten Commandments, we recognize that, hey, it took, this is, this is you know, the this, this seventh commandment, and there's other commandments that we need to consider. And I do think that sometimes even within the church, we can oscillate between isolating this one sin as the thing that we talk about, or we're so afraid of falling back into purity culture where we never really talk about it anymore. 
and kind of just leave it and and not deal with the sort of subtleties that can really arise uh, for the temptation of sexual sin to, to come up. So it's, it's a duality that we got to keep wrestling with. Yeah, you know, great. I, I really appreciate what you shared in terms of, because it had so much balance. Like, that's so helpful. Thinking about, you know, the Bible's teaching on sexuality within the framework of um, the Ten Commandments. Like, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is when we discussed um, the commandment, honor your you know, father and mother, how, um, you know, respecting authority, really pursuing the Christian life in terms of always submitting yourself to, you know, someone, something above yourself. That That's like a lost, I think, virtue that we need to recover. So I, I love what you said. You know, at the same time, I do think it's interesting just that when you look at the Old Testament, when you look at church history, like this is a sin that continues to snag so many. You know, it's like that say, why would the devil change his, uh, why would you change your approach when it's so effective, right? And so I agree that you know, we want to be careful not to treat it as the cardinal sin. I think, you know, a lot of uh, scholars have said Jesus spoke more about money and grief and sexuality. So you know, there's, there's truth in that too. Uh, but I also think that on the other hand, even like all, when we think about pastors that we know that have fallen, almost always it is uh, related to sex. And so there's something like about that balance that's really helpful to keep in mind. So that was really helpful, Gray. So when we're talking about sexual sin, you know, it's important, you know, this is a this is an issue that's come up a lot, of course, in recent times in terms of cultural discussion about these things. It's important to highlight what that includes and what, 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 is, the, what is being you know, discussed here. And it's interesting that if you look at other passages, you look around the Old Testament, you see that you know, this mandate about you know, not, not having sexual relations with the neighbor's wife is repeated in, um, in Leviticus chapter 18, 20, in, in the midst of a list of many other sins that apparently were quite plausible in the ancient Israelite setting, um, and yet are all kind of included under this one rubric that we find uh, in Leviticus 18 as this kind of sexual sin or sexual immorality. And the Greek translation of that word, of course, is porneia, and, and you know everyone knows exactly you know, what, you know, how that term is still borrowed today out of the Greek into English and shows up but you know this is the this is what is mentioned you know alongside um, adultery in Leviticus 18. Sexual relationships that would be incestual is included there with close relatives, um, parents and the spouses of parents, siblings, spouses of one's children and their children, aunts and their spouses, children. By law, in other words, this is where there's not a blood relation, but there's a legal relation. Um, sisters-in-laws and brother-in-laws, a woman and her daughter and her children, sister-in-law, women during menstruation. All of these rules are kind of listed alongside the each other as sexual sins. And so now in an ancient setting, um, that also includes, by the way, same-sex relations, 1822, and bestiality, 1823. And it's generally understood that you know these would have been all considered of a type, okay? Not that they're all the same and they're all you know should be treated with the same sort of um, importance. And yet, 
in this passage, they all cons- are considered as a type. And it's, it's generally understood that this is what Jesus is citing when he's, when he's talking about mandates against you know, sexual sin or sexual immorality. He uses the same Greek term to talk about sexual immorality. He uses that Greek term porneia, and it's generally understood that he's reflecting back on this broader Old Testament teaching about sexual immorality, where he's saying, actually, that while the law, uh, you know, puts a mandate against committing these acts, that he actually says, even, even, you know, giving into the temptation and kind of indulging the desire to commit these acts uh, also would fall under a breaking of the law and would not be befitting of someone who is a citizen in his kingdom. And it's all part of this kind of broader Sermon on the Mount discussion of Jesus increasing the law. So how do we take that? Now we, we kind of move from adultery or sort of a general talk about sexual immorality. How do we take that and apply that into the church today? This, this idea of dealing with indulging desires um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and guarding our hearts in these matters. Yeah, and of course, Jesus extends uh, extends the commandment to the life of the mind and the heart, not just with not just here, but you know, with the "thou shalt not murder" commandment as well. Do not even hate, and it's it's a, a super important reminder that it's not just what we do with our bodies that matters. It's what we do with our mind, with our heart, with our will. Uh, to in that the, these things, which are invisible to the rest of the world, are visible and to God, and God wants us to be, you know, again, to use the confessional language, chaste in, uh, in body and in, in mind. I think it's an important reminder also that, uh, that we need to be control, self-controlled. Self-control is a, an attribute not only of the body, but of the mind, and so it, it affects how I think. Um, you know, uh, it, it affects our, our minds, and we need to appropriately think about other people and the relationships that we have with those other people. Uh, we had somebody come in and talk to us about this at the, uh, in one of our classes, and um, they, they made the point, you know, how you think about the rest of your congregation matters. If you think about them as men and women, that changes uh, conceptually how you're thinking. If you think about them as brothers and sisters, you suddenly have this kind of relational standpoint to conceive of other, you know, other people and your relationship with those other people. I think to add to Tommy's point, so to sum up probably what Tommy is saying is that this is a holistic commandment that because both our soul and body um, can commit this sin in particular ways, we need to think about what we do with our hands, our eyes, um, what our thoughts are thinking about and so on. I think the second thing we should focus on is that even though, Scott, you mentioned that these are ancient commands rooted in a particular culture, in a time and space that's very distant from us, um, the Bible over and over again grounds these commandments in creation. These are creational commandments. And so they're not just tethered to a relative time and space, but rather they are enduring. This is something about God's moral law embedded within the way in which he has designed creation. And so we do well to consider that, again, we don't look at these commandments and say, hey, this is outdated, this is just for one particular culture, but this is actually talking about an enduring human nature. And so, you know, our culture doesn't really talk about human nature. We are so aware about diversity now, and and that's a good thing. We should keep in check our 
cultural prejudices and the ways in which we can read into other cultures our own biases. But we also have to consider that God has asserted a particular order within creation. And so sexual sin is one of those things. And I think perhaps the third thing we should consider here is, you know, Scott, what you really pointed out there is that the Bible refers to sexual immorality in the general sense and also talks about these things as applied in particular cases, right? And the Reformed ethical tradition makes room for that kind of moral reasoning of applying a particular law to cases. And that's the work of conscience. That's the work of our moral judgment that makes uh, an adjudication between a particular standard and cases. And I think what really is helpful for repentance from sexual sin is to get specific, right? It's not enough, I think, for a lot of us to repent and say, I struggle with sexual immorality and I want to repent from sexual immorality. It's much more helpful to say, I struggle with pornography or I struggle with looking at my neighbor with lustful thoughts and this particular uh, area of my life or something like that. The more specific we can get with our area of struggle, the easier it is, not that it's easy, but the, the more accessible it is to overcome that particular sin in the context of community and confession. That's really helpful. Like, you know, the people who have been in accountability groups uh, tend to be very general and say, yes, I, I struggle with lust or purity. And it's so vague. But when you name the context, the uh, expression, the temptation, it makes a world of a difference. And, you know, by the way, we're not just saying this as Christians. When you look at um, many scholars on habits, you know, like on the science of habits, they say exactly the same thing to you know, obviously, a lot of these writers, they just talk about and breaking, making or breaking any habits. They're not really looking at this spiritually. But nevertheless, one of the things that they all talk about is the importance of specificity. So, Ray, that's spot on. Well, and I think the rules that we see in Leviticus 18, for instance, it, it you're absolutely right. They reflect an application of this general command about having a sexual wholeness, right? A wholeness in our sexuality. And when there's a brokenness in your sexuality, which all humans now after the fall have to experience, there's a brokenness that finds expression in all of these different areas of life. And we're all sexual, sexually broken. We're all, we've all been traumatized in one way or another, just living in a in a fallen world, we've been we've been traumatized in one way or another, and this can find expression in a variety of ways. And the expressions that you find in chapter 18 of Leviticus, what do they, they reflect? They reflect an agrarian, family-based society where you probably know 50 to 100 people over the course of your whole life, and most of them are family members. And guess what? Your sexual brokenness is going to show up in that relate those relationships. And I think that's why there is an emphasis on, okay, look at all the different family relations that are, you know, you have to be mindful of when you're thinking about sexual relations. You know, so there's a lot of family and incest related issues. And in our culture today, that's not going to be as common in most sectors of probably sort of Western society, though it will be common in some places and you'll still see those kinds of sins arise. But now you're dealing in a place where there's much more opportunity to meet many different kinds of people and, and people who are not parts of, members of your family. And so we, we might say, well, look, it's interesting how the Bible really focuses on incest uh, and not on the, the last three that are mentioned there, particularly the neighbor's wife and same-sex relations and that kind of thing. 
but we might find that those are are more you know find more expression in the world around us today. I think the whole point is that our sexual brokenness that we all have and we all experience and we're all longing for a wholeness and being restored in our resurrection bodies. But until that day, we're wrestling with this sexual brokenness and it finds expressions in all different aspects and types of human society. Yeah. And to refer back to Tommy's comments about how the culture is in two voices on this. On the one hand, it wants to commodify and make completely nonchalant sexual activity. And secondly, they want to make it also our identity that we have a right to freely express our identity and that's in our sexuality. And what I think the Bible does is that it cuts against both of these sides and says sexuality is an important part of who you are before God and how you use your body is incredibly important. But at the same time, sexuality is not your identity. It's just one facet of who you are. And so if you're sexually traumatized, or you've been broken there, Scott, as you mentioned, you can recover from these things because it doesn't get at the heart of who you are. Because at the heart of who you are is that you're made in God's image, and hence how you relate with him is what's primary, both creationally and also redemptively in Jesus Christ. That's uh, who gives you your new identity. And hence, sexuality, again, is important, but at the same time, not a cardinal sin and not a pivotal identity of who you are. Yeah. And as parents, you know, that's something that we want to convey, you know, I'm mindful of the critique on the side of, of the purity culture, you know, that we hear a lot about. I wasn't raised in that kind of situation or where that was talked about in our churches, but I understand a lot of others have been, you know, and, and this idea that once you're, once you've fallen sexually, when you're, once you fall into the temptation of sexual sin, somehow this is a mark that cannot be changed, you know, um, we have to reject that as just anti-gospel anti teaching, right? Yeah. And yet at the same time, recognize that kind of experiential depth with which, you know, sexual sin affects us and recognize like, yeah, this is a, it's a serious thing. Like this is something to guard and to protect. And yet remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All the more, as Paul says, therefore, all the more we should yearn for wholeness in Christ, you know, and I, that's, that, that's a, that's not just with sexual sin, that's with a whole variety of sins. And yet I think experientially sexual sin is unique in this regard because we experience it you know, existentially as humans in a very unique way. Absolutely. And I think recovering the language of chastity is actually incredibly helpful and useful for that kind of task of recognizing the importance of sexual temptation and, and avoiding it and fleeing from it and for pursuing sexual wholeness. And also without the connotations of purity culture of once you've lost something, you can never gain it back. Chastity refers to this state of existence, a state of behavior, the state of living that can you that, that you can continue in or you can fall out of, but you can also come back to. And I think chastity avoids the sort of rigorous language of losing something and never gaining it back. That's great. No, I think that's absolutely right. Though I think we have a uh, we have a long uphill struggle to get the word chastity back. But <laughs> that's probably true. You're not wrong. You're not I think just etymologically it's gonna be hard to get that one back. And uh, a thousand a thousand romance novels probably <laughs> has ruined right. it. And that's it's right. no longer possible. 
Paul, we were talking offline about the importance of actively responding to sexual temptation, you know, in, in, in terms of uh, seeking a pure life, right? Seeking to live a life that gives expression to our sexual wholeness. Um, can, you, can you just repeat again what you were talking about? Well, there are many rich resources that we should read that help us to dig more deeply into maybe certain heart issues and idols. But there's also much value that is biblically warranted in just taking action steps. Like for instance, you know, the Apostle Paul does talk about sexual sin in, in terms of just flee from it, you know? And so sometimes uh, maybe for many people right now that are so deeply embedded in it, it might just be helpful to take concrete, perhaps extraordinary steps of just combating the sin. For instance, one of the things I do suggest to uh, individuals that, you know, struggle with like watching internet porn, uh, usually you don't do that at work. Usually you don't do that at a place like Starbucks, you know, and so it's usually when you're by yourself working from home. And so I think that taking a step of faith and really exhibiting sincerity and repentance is resolving not to work from home, you know, and so I would recommend, uh, similar to what um, Grace said before, even as you name the specific struggle, then it's helpful to name and outline the process you're going to take in order to overcome it. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, prevention being so important, uh, you know, don't put yourself in a situation where you're, you're right up to the edge of falling to your temptations. And the only thing keeping you back is your willpower, you know, but actually create conditions in which it's more difficult to fall into that sin. And I think, I think the, you know, Paul is really clear about that in first Corinthians you know, six, what we've been citing, you know, let's say flee immorality. I mean, flee sexual immorality, you know, don't, if, if someone tells you there's a shark, one of my pastors telling me, you know, in college, he said, you know, if someone tells you there's a shark in the pool, don't, don't go dip your toes in the water. Right. You know, it's, it's the idea of, of, preventing conditions in which you can fall into sin and yet also recognizing here's the hard part I think as pastors and as humans interrelating with other humans is that that means that some of our relationships are hindered because of our need to prevent temptation right and so we want to do that in a sensitive way we want to do that in a caring way we want to make sure that we're making up if there's a weakness there on our behalf that we're trying to make up for that weakness in some other way, you know, particularly as a minister who's caring for people, both men and women in the church, you know, how do you make sure that your people are all equally cared for and taken care of and yet do that in a way that is uh, preventative and uh, careful and protective of their relationships, not only with you, but with one another. That's a great point. And so you don't want to just get caught up in reading and not actually living a life that is expressive of our repentance and our faith in Christ. Um, but with that said, what are some resources beyond uh, this discussion and this podcast that we would point people to? Gray, you have any resources you'd point some folks to? Yeah, I think the easiest one to point to, at least recently, is Carl Truman's Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self that really chronicles why us modern people tend to make sexuality our identity and why we uh, fixate ourselves on it so much. Um, but pastorally, I still keep referring people back to Tim Keller's, uh, Tim and Kathy Keller's really meaning of marriage as a really useful outline of the purposes of marriage 
and uh, that as the context for which sexual intimacy should take place. Yeah, that's a great resource. And it's, it's a much bigger picture on how we have to think about our sexuality in light of marriage and that broader context, as you said. Um, I'd also point out, I mean, if, if people are interested um, in parenting and, and, and how to parent well and, and, and deal with these issues, um, Sharon Hirsch, who I mentioned earlier, she's an adjunct professor down at RTS Orlando. She has a book called Mom, Sex is No Big Deal helping your adolescent develop a healthy sexual ethic. And I, I found that to be a very useful book um, in thinking about how to talk about these issues with older children. Okay, this isn't the younger children book. This is the older children book. And then, of course, Rosaria Butterfield. She's taught for us before um, on issues related to both hospitality and also sexuality. Um, she's, uh, she's got a fascinating story. She came out of a same-sex lifestyle, same-sex attracted lifestyle, and um, wrote a book about it called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And uh, that's Rosaria Butterfield. And that's just, I think, helpful, not only in her story, but also hearing her reflect on her story and reflect on these issues as, you know, we are church members who are trying to love and show hospitality and charity toward those both within our midst and those outside of the church uh, who are dealing with sexual temptation. So a couple of resources there, and I hope that those are helped to you all. Thanks for this conversation. Um, this is not an easy one, of course, none of these are, but as we mentioned earlier, this is one that really gets to how we feel about ourselves and how we relate to those around us. And so it's a very sensitive topic, particularly in the culture in which we live today. But I think as we've seen, uh, this goes all the way back. This, is, this has been an issue for um, humans and how they relate to one another and how they relate to God for a long time. So it's been great to have this conversation with you brothers. Thanks for it. And uh, I look forward to coming back together next time. Until then, take care. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you're interested in knowing more about RTS Washington, you can come to rts.edu forward slash Washington, and you can find out more about our campus there if you'd like to study with us and, and, and go further in your inquiry into God's word. We'd love to be a part of that conversation. If you check in the show notes, you can also see a link to where you can post questions for the faculty podcast. We'd love to interact with you. So please ask us a question and we'll get to it in a future episode. Is that okay? That was perfect. <laughs> All right.